everyone. Welcome to the True Path Podcast. I'm so glad you're joining us today. So today we are beginning a new study in the book of Daniel, and we'll be discussing chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 today. Now, the reason I chose the book of Daniel as our next study is because I believe the life and times in which Daniel lived in some ways mirror our own. So I believe it's important to learn and apply the principles found in Daniel on how to live a godly life in the midst of a godless culture. So, how do we approach our study of Daniel? Well, I kind of see this book as two separate books. Chapters 1 through 6 primarily focus on the life of Daniel as an exiled Hebrew in the foreign land of Babylon, and chapters 7 through 12 deals primarily with Daniel's visions and prophecy. And I believe this framework is intentional. Prophecy is difficult to understand. I mean, even biblical scholars disagree on what all the prophecies in Daniel mean. But before we get there, we're given a picture of Daniel's life. God reveals the fact that Daniel is a person of unswerving faith in the midst of dire circumstances, and also is a man of truth and honesty. So by seeing Daniel's reliance on God in his life, it enables us to believe the words that he speaks. There's a quote that says, The words spoken and the life lived must match, or people will believe neither. I think God wanted to establish Daniel's authority and credibility as a deliverer of God's words through his life in chapters 1 through 6, so we would listen and believe his words in chapters 7 through 12. Now, before we dig into the text, I think it's important to lay a historical foundation. I believe establishing the historical context in which Daniel lived will add depth to our understanding of Daniel's thoughts and feelings. Now, the events in the beginning of the book of Daniel occur in 605 BC. Now, Israel had been divided into two separate kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. God continually warned both kingdoms through the prophets and his word not to fall into idolatry, to remain faithful to him. But time and time again, the northern kingdom of Israel rebelled against the Lord. So God sent the Assyrians to conquer them in order to punish them for their refusal to follow him and for their allegiance to foreign gods. Now, the southern kingdom of Judah, which included Jerusalem, stay loyal to God for a little while longer. Then, they too began the slow descent into idolatry. God sent the prophet Jeremiah, who warned Judah against rebellion, and told them that God would not allow his people to worship other gods, and he would send the kingdom of Babylon against them if they refused. But see, the people of Judah, they didn't want to hear all that negativity, even if it was the truth. Sound familiar? The people wanted to hear an upbeat, positive message. So many false prophets gave them what they wanted to hear and proclaimed that God would rescue them from defeat. There was no need to repent. And so God, being true to his word, sent King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon against Judah. You see, God knew that the path that Judah was on was going to lead to total destruction. Worshiping anything other than God always does. And God loved his people too much to let them completely destroy themselves. He sent Babylon to both punish them for their wickedness, but also to protect them. 
because God preserved a remnant of Israelites who would one day return to the Lord, because Messiah would come through the line of Judah. God chose one nation to bless all nations. So even in the midst of punishment, God still showed them grace. Because King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he didn't just completely destroy Judah and everyone there. He took captive Hebrews back to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah on three separate occasions. Once in 605, when he brought Daniel and his three friends back. In the second invasion, he brought the prophet Ezekiel to Babylon. So God allowed some of the Hebrews to survive and provided men of God who would encourage them and lead them in how to remain faithful in a land of captivity. And so Daniel, he's addressing the question the Hebrew exiles had, how to live as a minority group in a foreign culture that was sometimes hostile and sometimes friendly. How were they to, as one commentator says, fit in without being swallowed up? And I think that's a question that still resonates today. I mean, how do we as Christians live in a culture that's becoming more and more hostile to our worldview? How do we avoid being swallowed up? So let's read Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. In the third year of reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. Among them from the Judahites were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. So one Bible scholar suggests that the Hebrew exiles were suffering from an intense condition of theological shock at this time. They had no temple. The Davidic dynasty was terminated. A substantial number of Israelites were deported. And Jerusalem was conquered. These were the four pillars that undergirded their confidence, and they've all been shaken. Have you ever had an intense condition of theological shock? Have you ever had an experience that made you feel like the rug's been pulled out from under you? That makes you question things that a month ago you never thought you would? This is what it was like for the Hebrew exiles. And Daniel answers their question by reminding them and us that God is sovereign over creation as the God of gods and the Lord of kings. He determines the destinies of nations, even ours. He gives knowledge and understanding. God rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders and always keeps his covenant love. 
God knows all, controls all, and he will rescue you. So the passage says that King Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem in King Jehoiakim's third year. But Jeremiah 25.1 says that Nebuchadnezzar became king in Jehoiakim's fourth year. So what's going on here? I mean, why the discrepancy? Well, there is no discrepancy if you consider the fact that the Babylonian calendar was different than the Jewish calendar. And according to the Jewish system, they counted the year of ascension to the throne as the first year of a king's reign. And if Daniel's using the Babylonian system, which is highly likely, since he also used the Babylonian language to write part of this book, it was written both in Aramaic and Hebrew. So it would have been Jehoiakim's third year of reign, according to the Babylonian system. Now, the reason I mention this is to make the point that if you encounter a portion of scripture <clears throat> that you don't understand or that doesn't make sense, don't give up. Keep digging. Keep studying. Because the more you study, the clearer it becomes. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the conflict between Judah and Babylon, it was an ongoing conflict. King Jehoiakim of Judah, he was installed as a puppet king by Pharaoh Necho of Egypt after the death of King Josiah. Then Nebuchadnezzar gained fame for defeating the Egyptians at Carchemish just before ascending the throne. Nebuchadnezzar was considered the pride of the Babylonian Empire. He was considered one of the greatest kings of ancient times. He ruled for 43 years in Babylon. Incidentally, Babylon was located 50 miles south of the modern-day city of Baghdad in Iraq. Nebuchadnezzar was obsessed with conquest and power. Yet verse 2 says the Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to Nebuchadnezzar. You see, his success was not entirely his own doing. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hands in order to exercise temporary judgment upon Judah. You see, this reveals God's sovereign rule over human history. And this is important for us to remember, even in our world today. Because if you're like me, I mean, you want to stay abreast of current events and all that's happening in our nation and the world. But at the same time, we might feel apprehensive about watching and reading about it because it's nothing but bad news and negativity, which can lead to feelings of anxiousness and uncertainty. But we must remember, God is still in control and is over all things, even if we can't see it. You see, the devil is a master at illusion. He makes things appear worse than they really are. And he would like nothing more than for Christians to feel defeated by all the bad news swirling around us. But we must never forget that the God who loved you enough to send his only son to die for you is in sovereign control over the nations. And one of the best ways to cure a defeatist attitude is to join God in what he's doing. Go to church, join a Bible study, volunteer with a Christian aid group. Just start talking about what God has done for you. Because reminding ourselves of the wonder and beauty of our Lord will lift anyone's spirits. And it's also important to remember that when God does punish, it's never capricious or arbitrary. God never is. God sent Babylon to punish Judah as a consequence of not heeding God's continuous warnings to turn back to him. 
Now, as we mentioned earlier, Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah on three different occasions. This one in 605 BC, in which Daniel and his three friends were deported, a second time in 597 BC, in which the prophet Ezekiel was deported, and the third in 586 BC, when he completely destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Now, the books of Kings, Chronicles, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel all testify to these events contained in Daniel. And so this speaks to the reliability of Scripture. I mean, when this many people record the same events, it lends credibility to the accounts, and therefore believability to the accounts. And if we can believe that those events took place, then we can also believe God when he tells us that He we don't have to be anxious or fearful, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, that he will never leave us or forsake us, Deuteronomy 31, 8, and that all things are possible, Matthew 19, 26. So as verses 2 and 3 tell us, Nebuchadnezzar didn't just lay siege to Jerusalem and overtake it. He also took things back with him, captive Hebrews and some of the articles from the temple. So Nebuchadnezzar took the vessels from the temple of the house of the God and put them in the treasury of his God. Now the main god of Babylon, and they had many, was Marduk or Bel. Now it actually was a common practice in ancient times to plunder trophies of war from the temples of vanquished enemies. See 1 Samuel 5.2. It symbolized the supremacy of the gods of the conquering nations. But see, this is an ultimate act of blasphemy. I mean, to take vessels from God's house and display them in the temple of an idol? What a horrible thing to do. But what does Proverbs 19.21 say? Many plans are in a person's heart, but the Lord's decree will prevail. So while it appeared that Nebuchadnezzar was in control, even so far as to take things from the Lord's house and put them in his God's temple, God, he had a plan. Because roughly 90 years later, God would return these articles to a rebuilt temple. Ezra 6.5 says the gold and silver articles of God's house that Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem must also be returned to the temple in Jerusalem, where they belong, and put into the house of God. So what at the time seemed so terrible and difficult to understand how or why God would allow that to happen. God, he knew exactly what he was doing. Now the question is, will we trust him to do the same in our lives? So as I mentioned earlier, Nebuchadnezzar brought trophies and captives back to Babylon, and he ordered Ashpenaz, his chief court official, to bring in from the Israelite captives young men from the nobility who were handsome, teachable, perceptive, knowledgeable, and wise, who were capable of serving in the king's palace. You see, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't only ruthless and powerful, he was also very intelligent. Because rather than just bringing in the captives and conscripting them into slavery, Nebuchadnezzar decided to take the best and brightest captives and use their gift and talents for the benefit of Babylon. Now, this was not a novel idea. I mean, the Assyrians also did this. So in order to gain the captives' loyalty and to ensure that they would do their best work for Babylon, 
they were submitted to a program of indoctrination. Ashpenaz served as headmaster and overseer. The young men were taught the Babylonian language and Babylonian literature. They were given royal Babylonian food and drink, probably from the king's own table. It's probable that their curriculum also included the study of Babylonian agriculture, architecture, law, and math. It was a systematic process of indoctrination into the worldview of Babylon. Simply by imposing their cultural norms upon these young men, through learning, through a sort of school. The goal was to reorient the captive's thoughts, beliefs, and practices to those of Babylon. And if you can change their worldview, their thoughts, and their value system, then you can change their allegiance. I mean, it really was a genius plan. I mean, by deporting the best and brightest, it depleted the rank of leadership in Judah, preventing rebellion while adding talent and intelligence to Babylon. And the final step in the process of assimilation was assigning the captives new Babylonian names. So what's in a name? Well, think about the time and consideration that goes into parents' decisions to name their children. I mean, they think about how the first and last names sound together. They make sure it doesn't rhyme with anything that other kids could make fun of. Often we give our children the names of family members. And why? Well, because names are meaningful. So when we look at the Hebrew names of Daniel and his three friends and what they mean, Daniel means God is judge. Hananiah means the Lord shows grace. Mishael means who is what God is. And Azariah means the Lord helps. So when we look at these Hebrew names, what does this possibly tell us about the parents who named them? I mean, I think their parents must have feared and honored God. Now, I'm just speculating here. I mean, Scripture doesn't tell us, so take it with a grain of salt. But what if it was this foundation of honoring God laid by their parents that contributed to the four young men's faithfulness and love for God? And if this is so, then are we laying that same foundation for our children? I mean, do our children have the same kind of foundation undergirding them when they go off to school, when they leave home? Now, we all know it's up to our children to build on this foundation and to follow through on it, but have we laid it? But Daniel and his three friends, their names were changed. Daniel was given the name Belteshazzar, which means Marduk protects life. Hananiah was given the name Shadrach, which means I am fearful of a god Aku. Mishael was named Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. And Azariah was named Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. And here we see the completion of their indoctrination, completely removing their identities as Jewish citizens. Now that was Nebuchadnezzar's goal. But God's plan was far greater. As Matthew Henry says, they could change their names, but not their nature. I mean, it's truly remarkable that Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah were able to complete this program without compromising their faith in God and their godly worldview. So I believe we have to ask the question, how? I mean, how were these four young men able to prevent themselves from being swayed? 
and stay true to holy God in spite of being subjected to such persuasive brainwashing? Well, I believe the answer can be found in verse 8. Now, this verse was not part of our lesson today. We're going to discuss verse 8 in greater detail next session, but my point for today is that verse 8 says that Daniel determined or resolved that he would not eat the king's food. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah determined. Now, the meaning of this word in the original Hebrew, it means to put, to make, to set, or place. The same form of the Hebrew word is found in Deuteronomy 32:46, when Moses tells the people, take to heart all these words I'm giving you. And the words given to them were the words of God, given to Moses through the law. And the passage in Deuteronomy goes on to say that these are not meaningless words to you, but they are your life. So how did these young men avoid being assimilated into the pagan culture surrounding them? By being determined in their faith in God and determined in their adherence to God's holy word. They were resolved to take God's word into their hearts and minds and live by their faith in his words. What a great lesson for us all. What have you determined to do or be? Or have you determined anything? Our culture has made a determination and it is not to follow God. And if we haven't determined in our minds and hearts to be followers of Jesus, then we can easily become swallowed up by the world around us to the point that we don't look or act or think any different than they do. And that is a dangerous place to be because allowing ourselves to blindly absorb the culture around us eventually leads to adopting the beliefs and worldview of the culture around us. So our challenge for this week is to follow Daniel's example and be determined to walk faithfully with our God, to grow in wisdom and knowledge by reading his word and fellowshipping with him in prayer. Because that is how we will stay strong and resilient in our unbelieving culture. Thank you so much for joining me today. God bless you.